0: Hello and welcome to the inaugural Five Favourite Books podcast with me, Bella de Brera. I like to think of this podcast as a kind of literary Desert Island Discs, during which I'll be talking to a variety of guests about which books they'd take with them if they were to be stranded on a desert island. During the course of my conversations, I'll be hoping to find out a little bit more about both the books and my guests. And I'm delighted to announce that my first ever guest is going to be Greg Sheridan the Australian newspaper's foreign editor, who specialises in Asia, and one of the nation's most influential security commentators. Greg was given an Order of Australia Australia honour in 2016, with a citation for distinguished service to print media as a journalist and political commentator on foreign affairs and national security, and to Australia's bilateral relationships. He's also a prolific writer, having authored to date seven books, his latest, God is God good for you, a defense of Christianity in troubled times, is a passionate defense of religious belief in a secular age and has so far has sold 30,000 copies worldwide. Greg's first favorite book today is The Year of Living Dangerously by Christopher Koch, written in 1978. Um, before I talk to Greg about the book, I'll just give you a bit of a background because I hadn't heard of it before before I read it and it is fantastic. It's set in Jakarta in the fall of the Sukarno regime in 1965, and it's loosely based on um, the author's brother's experience in as an Australian journalist in Indonesia during that period. The author also worked there for two months in Jakarta in 1968 um, as an advisor to UNESCO. The novel is part political thriller, part epic love story, part morality tale, and part political uprising. And it's the story of a young Australian journalist, Guy Hamilton, a British female diplomat, Jill Bryant, and a fascinating character, China's Australian male dwarf, Billy Kwan. And it's all about their interaction in, in, Indi- their interaction in Indonesia in the summer and autumn of 1965. So Greg, welcome, welcome to uh, this first podcast. And um, thank you so much for being my first guest on Five Favourite Books. Now, you're not only a prolific writer, but you're also a prolific reader. So it must've been very difficult to come up with a short list of, of five. And my first question to you is, why the, um, the Year of Living Dangerously?
1: Well, Bella, it's just a joy beyond measure to be with you and to be talking about books. What fun this is. Um, Chris Koch became a very good friend of mine. I, I really was a stalker of his. He was my first celebrity stalking target. You know, I read this book. It, uh, it's This is a cliche, but it really changed my life. It convinced me that I, I, I read it on a plane going from Australia to London, my first overseas trip as a journalist in about 1979 or 80. And it was such a vivid, magnificent evocation of Jakarta and Indonesia and everything that a foreign correspondent can do and be, with much deeper themes as well, of course, that uh, I thought when when the plane stopped in Singapore, I thought I'm going to the wrong place. Why am I going to London? (laughs) Southeast Asia is so much more interesting. And from that moment on, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent and I wanted to spend a lot of time in uh, Indonesia. And um, but as well, as I think you've kindly said, it's just one of the I think it is the best written, most magnificent Australian novel uh, of any kind.
0: So it really changed the course of your life. You weren't you weren't really interested in 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 that part of the world until you picked up the book. Is that fair to say that it really changed your life?
1: It did. I I wouldn't say I had no interest in Asia. I mean, I was a child of the Cold War, so I grew up with the Vietnam War pressing ever on my conscience and uh, on my consciousness. I supported the South Vietnamese. I supported Australia's commitment in Vietnam. And then uh, with with friends at university, we campaigned strongly for Vietnamese Pope people to come to Australia. But but nonetheless, I had a traditional um, sort of Anglo-Celtic-Australian... Cold War outlook, which was that the center of the universe was uh, the United States and uh, the center of the Cold War was Russia and uh, Western Europe. And this just made Indonesia so interesting. I'd never been to Southeast Asia before I read this book, and I just determined that I wanted to spend a lot of time there. And of course, I ended up spending, you know, two thirds of my professional life, really, um, uh, not, not always based in Southeast Asia, but traveling back and forth all the time.
0: So when was the first time that you actually um, went to Indonesia? And so a lot of the novel, the very first, the very first um, sort of pages, us, uh, put us in the Wayang Bar in the Hotel Indonesia in Jakarta, um, which is, seems to be the, the the place where all the foreign correspondents go to be safe. It's this dark, air conditioned um, other world away from the troubles outside. Um, and I think in our conversations, you said you'd actually been there. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, many times. So the Hotel Indonesia was a was a, a, an icon of Jakarta. Um, I first went to Indonesia, uh, I think, when Gareth Evans was foreign minister. There was a period when Australian journalists weren't allowed in, so I went in uh, on his coattails. Um, but I stayed at, at the Hotel Indonesia when it was still the sort of one wonderful, rackety, uh, government-owned, run-down, allegedly five-star, but really pretty, pretty sort of... Um, you know, ramshackle kind of hotel. I stayed there again recently, just uh, just a few weeks ago, and now it's a Kempinski hotel, and it's the last word in um, in luxury and everything. But the year of living dangerously is set in nineteen sixty-five, which was the the crazy year in Indonesia. Uh, it was the end of the the rule of Sukarno. Sukarno is one of the most astonishing and frankly weird people ever to lead a country. Uh, if if you ever really want to get a sense of Sukarno's weirdness, you should read his um, autobiography as told to an American journalist, I think it was Cindy Adams, where he talks about how beautiful he is and how even men can't resist him, he's so good looking and so on. And in that year, there was apparently an attempted communist coup and then there was a military counter coup. Sukarno got, uh, you know, put into kind of forced house house arrest and Suharto uh, came to power and modern Indonesia was really born. And the Hotel Indonesia with its Wayang Bar was the, the only five-star hotel in town. It was where all the Western journalists uh, congregated. It was where a lot of intrigue between government uh, happened. Lots of spies went there, all the foreign diplomats went there. That sort of hotel doesn't really exist anywhere in Asia now, but it, it, it was a very evocative place.
0: And so Sukarno actually penned, it's interesting, he penned the title of this book, didn't he, in his speech in 1964, his inaugural, um, what was the speech that he gave? It was the sort of the National Day, wasn't
1: it? National Day speech. So Chris was always a bit protective of these words, the year of living dangerously. Mm -hmm. One of the astonishing accomplishments of this novel is that the, the phrase, the year of living dangerously, entered the global English language through this novel in the way that 1984 did or Big Brother or something like that. When you think of it, there are very few Australian novels which have given a resonant phrase to the whole world. Now, Sukarno said, you know, this year ahead will be a difficult year for us or something. But it was Chris who who gave it this perfect phrase, it's... the year of living dangerously. And there's a great rhythm always in Chris's prose. Chris. Chris was a poet really but I I almost don't want to say that because it makes it sound as though the, the novel would be difficult as though it would be too high for but he just had a wonderful sense of the cadence and rhythm of language and the year of living dangerously you almost can't say why but there's something so evocative about the about the words that they they've become you know every Second headline you read in the New York Times talks about you know COVID nineteen. This is our year of living dangerously or something like that. And of course, a novel only does that if it's also a great novel, which gets gets read by hundreds of thousands or millions of uh, or millions of people.
0: And and it is a great novel. Um, and one of the things that I really found exciting about it, as I mentioned earlier, there's sort of there's very, there's many levels that you can read it on. It's not just, it's not just a political, his, his, sort of historical political narrative, but there's this great love story as well between the characters and love triangles and, and the inter, in, interactions between all the characters who I was convinced by the end of the novel that they, that that's, they must have existed or they must have been based on, on real people. I was convinced that, you know, Billy Kwan was, was lived in, and breathed and lived in that bungalow and, 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 and sort of, um existed, as same with Hamilton and Joe Bryant. We'll talk about the characters later. but but first of all, um, what what do you think are the main themes of the of the book? I mean, uh, other than other than a sort of political other than the, the sort of the political aspect of of looking at this crazy this Sukarno, this crazy character um, who who was just, as you say, was just was just bizarre.
1: Um, well Bella, the book operates on many levels, but again, it does so seamlessly. I mean, it, it sounds t- too pretentious. It sounds like lit crit one to say it operates on many levels. It's essentially really the story of Billy Quan. Uh, now, Chris always felt that a literary novel should be a great commercial success. He wanted to have millions of readers. He didn't want to write, you know, for an academic audience and and uh, just be cheered on by critics. Although this book. We had wonderful critical reviews, you know, Anthony Burgess and Graham Greene and uh, The London Spectator and The New York Times. All over the world, this was regarded as a great book and it won all kinds of awards. But at one level, it works as Guy Hamilton's story. He's the Australian journalist. He goes to cover Indonesia in 1965. He falls in love with the British diplomat, Jill Bryant. They ultimately uh, come together and, and, you know, at the end of the novel, they're going to get married. And he witnesses the downfall of Sukarno, but really, the book is all about this astonishing dwarf, Billy Quan. And in an earlier incarnation of this book, Chris had written it as the dwarf of Melbourne, and uh, then he transposed the setting to Jakarta, and everything works seamlessly together. At one level, the deepest theme is a very uh, um, big theme in Chris's work, which is the the danger of illusion. So yeah. Billy Quan, this half Chinese, half Australian. Dwarf cameraman mm. idealizes Sukarno, and he idealizes Guy Hamilton. Yes, they both let him down. Yeah, and he cannot deal with yeah. the with the shattering of the illusion. He he believes Sukarno is going to be a great leader who loves the poor of Indonesia and who will help them have a decent life. He believes Guy Hamilton is a kind of a, a great man, a knight errant, and he. Billy Kwan is also in love with Jill Bryant, and he he withdraws and fosters the affection between Guy and Jill. But then Guy, being a typical journalist, betrays Jill's trust in the interest of a story. Of yeah. course, that's what drives all journalists, you know, the interest of the story. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so he disillusions Billy. And then Billy finally makes a political protest against Sakano, which sees him get killed. But it's almost like a suicide. And this is a theme which runs through Chris's work all the time, the, the, the false promise of illusion and the need to deal uh, with reality. And of course, Indonesia for a Westerner is in many ways uh, or was then particularly a land of illusions. You know, so much of the, of the novel occurs at night yeah. and it's very hard for the Western consciousness represented by Guy Hamilton to try to come to grips with the fluidity and ambiguity of uh, of Javanese culture i believe that the department of foreign affairs even today these many decades after it was written still gets their new diplomats arriving in jakarta to read this book because yeah. it's the best western treatment of indonesian culture and the the interrelationship the you know the the collision of the western culture and the indonesian culture
0: i don't i don't think guy ever really understands where he is and i don't think he really tries to understand um, other than from a for, from a journalistic level, he's there's a scene where um, he's at Billy Kwan's bungalow, and Billy Kwan's trying to explain about puppetry and about Javanese, um, about sort of history and characters and religion, and, and and I think Guy's just not interested. He sort of dismisses it and just sort of says, "Well, who are they and who are they?" But he never really he never really interacts with with the locals. Whereas Billy obviously takes takes a um, a, a woman and her son under his wing and sort of looks after them. He 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 feels he's doing something for the for the community. And he's totally invested in Sukarno as, as a saviour of these poor people. And I think and that's how he differentiates himself between the other characters because he really feels it.
1: Billy's, uh, there are some of the most powerful scenes in the novel. Uh, Billy visiting the woman in the campfire, mm-hmm. the poor woman, yeah. trying to care for her and this, her baby. These are, the ex- scenes are just, magnificent Mm -hmm. writing. Uh, They're they're just the most beautiful scenes you could imagine in literature. I would have a slightly different uh, interpretation of Guy Hamilton. Mm -hmm. I think Guy, uh, another very typical theme of Chris's is the duality uh, that we all have within us, which is ultimately the duality between good and evil. Mm -hmm. But Guy is himself caught up in his own duality. He wants to be a good man and he has a poetic side. But he lives in a very tough profession, journalism, and he lives at a time when morality has kind of fallen apart. There's quite a powerful scene at the end where Guy is talking to his assistant, Kumar, who it turns out is is a communist. And Kumar says, you Westerners have no answers anymore. Kumar says, we're going to win, we communists, Mm. because we really believe. You Westerners, you no longer believe in anything except your pleasures and you no longer have any answers. But Guy is actually better than that. Although Guy, to some extent, betrays Jill's trust, he nonetheless, he does try to respond decently to Billy Kwan, whom he kind of loves, to Kumar, whom he knows is a communist. Uh, he tries to respond truly to the story. So he's always um, he's always trying to tell the story conscientiously. He wants, you know, Jill falls pregnant, and he wants uh, he wants to have the baby. He doesn't want uh, he doesn't want there to be an abortion. Mm. Um, and of course, there is a theme. One of the many themes in the book is the sort of the collapse of morality and where that leads you. There's a lovely phrase where Chris describes uh, Jill Bryant as someone who has just moved into the outer suburbs of uh, promiscuity. She hasn't quite moved into the yep. city she's yeah. just in the outer yeah. suburbs and that's a very caution kind of uh formulation you know and but you can't really run your life that way yes yeah, uh,
0: certainly, certainly guy doesn't like to hear about that aspect of jill he likes and i think there's there's another quote where he's described as sort of as as has having edwardian um edwardian moral uh, edwardian morality so a morality from another age not the 1960s um, yeah,
1: yeah guys are kind of old-fashioned good he's guy. old-fashioned yeah, Guy Guy is a sort of a knight errant. Uh, yes. uh, I mean, he's a tall, broad-shouldered, brave bloke, suffering a whole series of. His...
0: Dressed immaculately dressed.
1: Well, you know, he dressed like <laughs> a well. Of course, he was played by Mel Gibson in the film. <laughs> yeah, visually, that was a very good. Uh... It
0: was a very good casting.
1: And Jill, Jill in the novel, um, is, is is a gentle person who wants a big guy to look after her yeah. in a way, you know. Yeah. And, uh, of course, this is one of the reasons I think Kosh couldn't write about uh, contemporary lives was because the, you know, relations between the sexes are just were not something he understood in a contemporary. So he, in most of his novels are set at the latest in the 1960s and 70s and often a long time, a long time uh, uh, before that.
0: So do you think Kosh sort of modelled himself slightly on... Guy, or I mean, sorry, he modelled slightly. He guy, he modelled Guy on himself rather than. Do you think there's well, a little bit of caution in, in the character of Guy Hamilton and his his his, his clinging, his his wanting to, to to keep the morality at a certain sort of pre 1960s, um, uh, sort of status.
1: Yeah. yeah, so Guy was no wowzer, and nor was Chris. Indeed, as I as I, you know, as a few a few hangovers, I would testify, uh, you know, in in evidence, um, that I suffered in his company, but. Uh, yes, so Chris did model his characters a little bit on real people. He would take certain aspects of real people and use them. He, he said otherwise a character was too theoretical. Mm. But it wasn't It wasn't slavishly based on anyone. It, the experience was based partly on his brother, Philip Kosh, who was a very yeah. successful ABC correspondent in Jakarta in the period that's covered. And certainly, I think his attitude to... Um, issues of morality was similar to Chris's but on the other hand Chris Chris is a kind of contemplative uh, poet and novelist whereas Guy Hamilton is a man of action guy guy likes to be out in the street uh, with the smell of cordite as close to danger as he can get you know so that aspect that aspect of guy uh, was not based on on Chris I think the character of Billy Quan, there's a bit of Chris in that, too. Uh, Billy is a convert to Catholicism. Uh, Billy is always, he keeps all these secret files on everybody. He's very, uh, very always turning over in his mind the meaning of events. He's thinking things through. He's an intellectual, but also he's out uh, recording um, recording events through, through his lens.
0: Yes, actually that's something that I like to the, the secret files thing is quite strange. I, I sort of had a lot more sympathy for the character of Billy Kwan until until we realized, until we found out that he'd been keeping some very, very detailed and um, um probably not very suitable notes on everybody, um, you know, and and, and had body types for women and sort of um uh, was basically spying on spying on Jill and, and um Guy and and writing about it. Um and that sort of goes beyond the beyond normal behaviour for for anyone. And so I sort of at that point in the novel, I just I thought I I, I quickly became disillusioned with the character of Billy Quan because it showed that it was it was creepy. Is a, is not the right word, but
1: now creepy is okay. And I, I know just what you mean, Bella. Yeah. I, I went through a similar series of <laughs> looking through
0: the window at people and writing it down.
1: Yeah. I went through a similar series of feelings with Billy myself when I first read the book. Billy, I think, is one of the great characters of English literature. So Jill Bryant and Guy Hamilton, they're very fully realized, and some of the other characters they're they're great, but there are lots of Jill Bryant's and Guy Hamilton's throughout literature. There's only one Billy Quan. Yeah. Billy Quan is is an extraordinary literary creation. And, of course, he's not meant to be altogether a good guy or altogether a normal guy because even his obsession with Sukarno is abnormal. His obsession with Guy is abnormal. Mm-hmm. Now, at one level, you can say it is a little bit like a novelist does, uh, you know, what Billy did. So a, a good novelist will very often have very detailed notes about the characters he's wanting to create. Yes. And Billy, of course, was sort of wanting to create Guy as well as seeing in Guy a hero uh, and a saviour, he was also trying to mould Guy so doesn't, early on.
0: Doesn't he say to Guy, "I created you, I made you"? That's, that's no. one of the it's things true. that he says to him. He he feels that he cre- he feels that he was because he thinks he's a, he's sort of godlike, like Sukarno, because he also says, "I could have been Sukarno." So he he feels that he has that that godlike power that Sukarno has.
1: Yeah. So Billy is a guy who is seduced by his own illusions, and but he's a brilliant brilliant guy. So the seduction is not altogether fraudulent, but mm. you're absolutely right, Bella. Um, when Guy first gets to Indonesia, so part of one of the joys of the book is the tremendously realistic way it deals with the profession of journalism, and and of course we're rightly talking about the meaning and the themes of these characters, but of course it's also a wonderful naturalistic novel. You know, it's a rattling good read. You know, you're thrilled. What happens next? Yeah, look, away? I
0: couldn't, I couldn't put it down.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, when I first read it, I read it all the way on that yeah. one flight, you know, yeah. and then I've read it many times since. But when Guy first gets to Jakarta, as it's, he works for something called the ABS, which is obviously meant to be the ABC, and uh, the Australian Broadcasting Service, I think it's called in the novel. And his predecessor didn't want to leave or something. So he leaves without any handover period. He doesn't help Guy in any way, doesn't leave him any useful files. And Guy arrives there. This is his big break—the first chance he's had in his career to do something significant. And he has no contacts and a very well-established press corps in Jakarta, who have all the contacts, all the experience. This is Guy's first overseas assignment, and he's at a bit of a loss. How he's going to break in? Well, yeah, anybody who's been—yeah, anyone who's been a rookie correspondent knows exactly how that feels. You know, all these guys know everything. How, well, all these guys and girls know everything. How am I going to get yeah. my first yeah. and very often somebody gives you a hand. When I went to Indonesia, brilliant Indonesian diplomat Sabam Siagian sort of adopted me in the way Billy Kwan. Yeah. I mean, Sabam was not weird like Billy Kwan, but <laughs> <He wasn't. laughs> I, Sabam, you know, I was I went there first with Gareth Evans, and yeah. Sabam was the ambassador, the Indonesian ambassador to Australia. And there were three days of confidential talks between Australia and Indonesia. And every night Sabam would get me to come to the bar in the Hilton and briefed me on everything that happened in the talk. So I got infinitely better um, information than I was getting from the Australians or than anyone else was getting. And it was one of those, you know, Jakarta is just one of those strange cities where magical and strange things happen. Now, why did someone decide to adopt me? Who knows? But this is, I'm digressing a bit, but this is a very realistic Mm. dilemma that Guy has. And then Billy gets him an exclusive interview with the leader of the Communist Party and that is Guy Hamilton's big break. And all journalists will sympathise with this too. Once you crack a great big story, everybody wants to talk to you. So when Billy says to Guy, I made you, he, he does mean at some more spiritual level, but he also means professionally. Oh, you yes. Know, I, yeah. I got you your big break and indeed a series of big breaks because Billy has all these contacts mysteriously everywhere.
0: Yes, and that's the other funny thing about the character is that he's, he's sort of he knows all these people and he manages to get into to, 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 to all the the, the the events and all the things that are happening in Jakarta at the time. Like he's known by everyone and he's he has he has an influence that doesn't that doesn't correspond with his with his um, original introduction in the book as being a sort of slightly comedic dwarf and you know there's there's the sort of the description of his big head and his and his and his sort of out of proportion legs and things. But actually he's very very highly intelligent and highly well connected. Um, and and it it sits uneasily with his dwarfism, which is something that is that he's actually obsessed with. So when they look at the files, um, he's obsessed with the history of dwarves, and he's obsessed with his ho- his whole condition. And he's very focused on himself in that as well. That was quite interesting. That the author didn't shy away from that. And it's and there's a scene where Guy actually asks him about him, and he's embarrassed to ask him about his 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 being a dwarf as well. So you sort of get, you get awkward for, for Guy when they talk about it in the novel. Um, and I don't know if that's the sensibilities of the 21st century or, or our political correctness, but... Well, guy,
1: guy feels awkward too. And so Guy is essentially a very good guy and, um, and he loves Billy and he's always trying to protect Billy and, and Billy's always trying to protect him. There's, there's a deep male friendship, which is not homoerotic or anything, but a, a very deep male friendship between Billy and Guy. And Guy doesn't want to talk about Billy's dwarfism generally because he, he just wants to accept yeah, and relate to Billy yeah. as as a as a good guy and a and a brilliant cameraman. Yeah. A brilliant, brilliant cameraman. Yeah. And and a great friend. But Billy, of course, is constantly intellectualizing everything yeah. and uh, and then some of the other journalists in the bar
0: fun are, of
1: are pretty crude and make a lot of jokes and yeah. so on. Now, who could ever imagine that of journalists, foreign correspondents, yeah. Australian? Who I'm <laughs> yeah. in heaven for? fen you know what a how unbelievable that yeah, is. See, that's
0: in the, that's a bit in the book that I found the most unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some
1: <laughs> drink too much, you know. Some in <laughs> the wrong district of Jakarta. I mean, well, of course, you know that that was uh, you know deeply implausible. But but Guy wants to relate to Billy as just a regular bloke to mm. a regular bloke. Billy is too complex, and Guy doesn't. You know, there's not a good language around how to deal. Uh, with um, issues that we'd regard as issues of diversity. When they came to make the film, casting Billy Kwan was extremely difficult. Finding yes. a, a small of stature yeah. Chinese with, Westerner.
0: With green and, eyes.
1: Yeah, in the end, they got... Um, Linda. Uh, a, an American actress, a, a woman, um, yeah, to play...
0: Something.
1: Uh, what, was, what name was it? Um, Linda.
0: Linda. Linda, yeah,
1: yeah. Linda Hunt. She
0: won awards for it as well. She won an
1: Academy Award. So this yep. is one of the very few Australian films. This was a wholly Australian film, not self-consciously Australian, but wholly Australian. And it's one of the very few Australian films ever to have won an Academy Award. So Linda Hunt, um, if that's her name, if I remember her name correctly, won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. But, of course, she was playing across the gender, yeah. because she was playing Billy Quan, who's a bloke. Yeah. And uh, but she was the right size, and she did a brilliant job. The story of the film is very funny. Chris had volcanic arguments with Peter Weir, and it was a, uh, and the film, you know, was as dramatic as as the book. Just the making of the film, and Chris wrote the script, and then they kept revising the script, and he he was responsible for about fifty percent of the script. It won lots of awards too. And then Peter Weir banished him from the film set, said he couldn't go anywhere near it and all the rest of it. And then right at the end, because the the uh, fashion at that time was for very visual films without too much dialogue. And Chris, of course, is an extremely verbal person, although he uses words to create visual uh, sensations. Right at the end, Peter Weir, showing the good ruthlessness of the artist, came back to Chris and said, actually, my film doesn't quite make sense as I've shot it. Can you... Write a series of voiceovers for Billy Kwan. Oh. This was just after Brideshead revisited the first television version yeah. of his voiceovers. So Chris then wrote a series of narrative voiceovers for Billy Quan, which then became one of the great signatures, one of the great leitmotifs of, of of the film. And and it's an extraordinary film for for an Australian film of its uh, of its time, or or for a Hollywood film. You know, such an acute presentation of Indonesia it's uh I, I can't think of indonesia figuring in many many western movies
0: why should people read it what, why should and and this is a very good time for us i wasn't going to mention uh the coronavirus but people have a lot of time in, inside at the moment and and um and if you want if 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 you want to, from from my opinion if you want a book that you can't put down you should read the Year of living dangerously um but why do you think what does what do why does Greg Shoarden think that the Australian population should read this book?
1: First of all, it's great fun. It's a gripping read. A novel is not an academic treatise. A novel tells a story, as A.M. Forster put it. Above all, a novel tells a story. Secondly, it's uh, it's still the most penetrating study of Indonesia that you'll get in um in mainstream uh, in mainstream literature. Um, it's. Uh, uh, there's, let me. Can I read you a passage? Please that, do.
0: That,
1: so it's it's an immortal classic treatment of Jakarta, and Jakarta is one of the most complex Byzantine, extraordinary uh, cities that you could ever um, that you could ever uh, you, that you could ever visit. And there's a um, the writing is both beautiful, but it's not um, it's not difficult if you know what I mean. Um, now I've just. Uh, I've just lost this passage, wouldn't you know it? Here it is. um, Oh, here it is. Here it is. So part of the thing is it evokes, with all writing, i found this even with my own writing, one of the things you want to do as a writer is to evoke a certain time and place. Mm. And this gives you Indonesia more classically. So let me read two paragraphs about Jakarta in 1965. And Chris writes, there is a definite point where a city, like a man, can be seen to have become insane. This had finally happened to Jakarta when we reached the 17th of August, Merdeka Day and the end of Sukarno's year. Amok is an old Malay world and Jakarta had now run amok with classical completeness. For a long time, a man may be unbalanced, given to irrational hopes and irrational rages. And though these signs are disconcerting, we continue to think of him as eccentric but sane. It's always difficult to believe that someone we know well has crossed into that other territory where no one from our side can reach him and from which messages crackle back that no longer make any sense. But finally, something happens to jar us into seeing this. That's how it was with Sakano's Jakarta in the middle of that weird August, the end of the dry monsoon. Now, for anyone who's ever spent any time in Jakarta, the sense that Jakarta is kind of a little bit mad, you know, is not... I mean, it's it's, in many ways, a wonderful city. I've had nothing but happy experiences in Jakarta, but but there's something in that passage which is timeless. Uh, So he was describing a specific phase where the city was breaking down. But nonetheless, uh, you know, I find that image of a city as a man going insane... Very arresting.
0: And you do and uh, you do get the sense throughout the book that the you are heading towards a certain insanity, that not just in terms of the city, but everyone's behaviour. everyone gets a little bit crazier as as time goes on. Um, and And I wonder if the new Jakarta will be as as insane as the as the old one when they finally move the capital.
1: Yeah, well, there's talk of moving moving the capital. but I, I don't think it's ever going to happen. It's uh, I mean the president has this. Crazy dream of moving Jakarta to a uh, to a different location, but what you say there, Bella, about the novel—the sense of um, of uh, vertigo almost, or mm-hmm. of entropy that you get as the novel goes on. But Chris, uh, <coughs> one reason I love him as an artist is he hated surrealism or anything like that in art. So the novel remains completely realistic. It's it's poetic and beautiful. It's a heightened reality but it's completely realistic. You know, you don't turn into a salamander or, or, or no. you know, a flea doesn't become life-size or, you know, you can't, you don't get confused between whether something's a dream or or your waking consciousness. And it ends with the terrible bloodshed mm. of the coup and um, and then the counter-coup and, and, you know, which was really one of the very bloody episodes of the 20th century. But nonetheless, right from the start, there is a sense that, the tension is, is just slowly tight. Yes. So there's, there's humour and light relief and everything in the book. But you just get, and Kosh does this magnificently, he builds the tension and you get the sense all the time that you're getting nearer and nearer and nearer to some kind of insanity or some kind of climax or something. And of course, you know, um, we've given away a bit of the plot that Billy Billy dies, uh, although it wouldn't be very hard to, to predict that. And there's a whole series of climactic events yeah. uh, at the end. I mean, some people have criticised the book and said it's a typical Western book, you know, the the Westerner in Asia, that sort of thing. It bears a lot of comparison to Graham Greene's The Quiet American, yeah. although I think it's an infinitely better novel than The Quiet American. But after all, we are Australians interacting with Indonesia. Chris couldn't really write from the point of view of an Indonesian uh, person. He's writing from the point of view of an Australian interacting with Indonesia and um, so why why read it just because it's it's so much it's so enjoyable and yet it's so rich at every at every level.
0: Yes and I'm certainly looking forward to reading it again actually so but with a perhaps a, more of a I, I didn't know so much about the the Sukarno and I didn't know so much about the historical political uh, background um, and I'd like to do some more research before I read it again because I think it'll be it'll mean much more. Well, the I... other
1: point, the other point I'd make about the historical background, Bella, Chris also had a very deep conviction that the uh, Indian culture was profoundly sympathetic to us and fundamentally allied to us. In one of his lovely essays, he wrote that it was the Indians who were our brothers under the skin rather than the Brits. He had a sense of Australia as a second-hand nation on the edge of things. By second-hand, he didn't mean second-rate, but we had to take our culture from somewhere else. So we inherited our culture from from Britain as a modern European nation. And Chris loved, you know, although he was a German-Irish, he was of German-Irish ancestry, so he didn't have any particular British uh, connections. He loved British inheritance and everything, but he understood that Australia was something different. We were something different and he had great sympathy with india as also a child of the british empire and also in a sense at second hand it had been so thoroughly penetrated by the british that there was a sense in which it was both indian and british this duality again and what one of the things that attracted him to indonesia i think was the the indo Inheritance. So the very name Indonesia,
0: Yes. the, the Wayang
1: play, yes. which forms such a, a, a beautiful motif in the, yes. in the book. Although well, Indonesia- there's,
0: a lot of, there's a lot of puppetry, there's a lot of shadows, there's a lot of. Um, I think nearly every every few pages, somehow he manages to tie in the idea of the Wayang, the puppets, and that. that yeah. puppet. So the,
1: the Wayang Kulit is a traditional Indonesian puppet play, mm. a shadow play, and I've attended wonderful Wayang performances in Indonesia. But one of the interesting things about it is Indonesia is a Muslim nation. It's the biggest Muslim nation in the world, the most populous Muslim nation in the world. About 85 or 87% of its people are Muslim. But the Wayang is a Hindu inheritance. Mm. It's an Indian inheritance. Mm. And it still has many of the characters of Indian and Hindu uh, derivation. And Chris just loved this sort of thing. He just loved the fertility of the Indian influence. And so in a sense, Indonesia was also coping with this duality. Its own past, its great past was pre-Islamic and Hindu, actually, and many Indonesian names are Hindu names. Mm. And somehow Australia is in the slipstream of this. So although Chris was not a professional Asianist, no one in Australian literary history, in my view, has written more powerfully or more evocatively about the Australian connection with Asia. Now, that didn't mean that Chris gave up his identity as a European-Australian, quite the reverse. Because he had such a secure cultural identity, yeah. he could journey forth into Asia yeah. and really uh, enjoy and benefit from its riches and engage in the deepest dialogue with it because he knew he was formed by Shakespeare and Goethe and uh, and the Bible and, and, and so forth. Uh, and it seems to me he's never quite got the credit for being the pioneer he was uh, in Asia. To think, when Chris wrote that book, we we're only a few years out of the White Australia policy, and yet it sold in hundreds and hundreds of thousands in Australia—a book, a book about Asia. Probably, uh, you know, probably still the best-selling um, Australian book about Asia in all our history. And of course, Chris was a bit of a conservative, so he never kind of quite got credit culturally either for for yeah. leading this creative. Um, bridge into asia but bella i'm you know i'm going on much too much about it but as you can see i think it's just a plenitude of riches there is it month.
0: is and i encourage everyone to to read the book so that they can to also discover this plenitude of riches um and i think i think we'll end on that positive note um it's been a fantastic discussion and i can't wait to talk to you about your next favorite book which we will not uh, disclose until our next podcast
1: Thanks so much, Bella. Real joy to talk to
0: you. Thank you so much.